Father, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus, and that is our confession this morning. All we have is Christ. Father, we have nothing else to bring to the table except for what you have given us in your son, Jesus, and we thank you that in giving us Jesus, you've given us everything that we need. We thank you that Jesus is all that we need. We thank you that by sending him, that through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, you have provided everything that we need. So will you create in our hearts this morning a desperation for him, a longing for him? Help us to see that we will never be content and we will never be satisfied in anything apart from him. And Father, as we open your word this morning, as we consider what it means to follow him, not just to check boxes and to fulfill practices, to come to a building one day a week, but to follow him and to consider what that means and what that demands of us. Use your word to shape us and make us more like Jesus. Draw us closer to him today as you call us to yourself. So Father, will you use your word today to edify your church and glorify your name? Will you sanctify us in truth? Your word is truth. We surrender ourselves to it now. And we ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen, amen. Hey, before you're seated, uh, very quickly, I'll just uh, ask from the back of the room, if you could uh, move in as best as possible toward the center aisle, if you do have space in between. I know we're, we're crammed in here tight. This is the busy service today. I understand some of us uh, maybe didn't get as much sleep as normal last night. Uh, so if you normally attend the 9 a.m. service, welcome to the 1045 service today. Uh, glad to have you here this morning. You can go ahead and be seated. Thanks for your help with that. Even just a couple of seats are helpful um, for us here. So grateful uh, for your flexibility there. Well, I want to invite you to go and turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22 is what we're going to be looking at together this morning. I'm going to jump right into things here in just a second as we prepare to take a look at Jesus calling his first disciples from this passage today. Right now, our staff's in the process of clearing out the office space that we rent because we're preparing to move into our facility, Lord willing, here in the next few weeks. And uh, this past week, I was cleaning out my desk in my office, and I found a picture uh, that was buried deep in my desk drawer. It's a picture of me about 20 years ago when I was a junior in high school, and I was at an Alabama game in Tuscaloosa. And what's funny about this picture is that uh, at the time, I weighed about 30 pounds more than I do right now. And so I was showing this picture uh, to our staff and a few people in the office. And so to me, 20 years younger, 30 pounds heavier. And uh, everybody was laughing at how different I looked in that picture compared to how I look now. And the difference for me was a catalyst event that took place about five years later. And I've shared this story before, but long story short, um, in 2008, uh, my appendix ruptured. And I had some complications in surgery and uh, basically had to spend a couple of weeks in the hospital had a very limited diet for, for several weeks after that. And in the course of all of this, um, I lost about 40 pounds altogether and only ever gained about 10 of it back. Um, so literally in the course of one month's time, I went from a 34 waist to a 30, which by the way is not the diet I would recommend. Like losing organs is not the way to go if you're trying to shed pounds. But, but when you look at a picture of me then and then you look at me now, it's abundantly clear my body's gone through a radical transformation of who I used to be. And my ruptured appendix was the catalyst event that, that set all of that into motion. 
And in the same way, whenever we take the step to follow Jesus Christ, this is a catalyst event. It's a catalyst moment that should result in a radical transformation of every detail of our lives. When people see us after we've started following Jesus, there should be a noticeable difference of how our lives look in the here and now and how our lives used to look before we came to faith in Christ. You know, so much of the challenge that I think we experience is unique to us right here in Beaufort, South Carolina, is that, man, here in the Bible Belt, there are so many who are Christians in name only. They're those who profess to be followers of Christ, but when you look at the substance and the actions of their lives, it's abundantly clear they're not actually following Jesus. One of the fundamental issues facing so many today is the desire to be a Christian, the desire to say that we're followers of Christ, but simultaneously the desire to hold on to our old ways of life. So we say, I want Jesus, but we also say, as long as it means I can keep my comfort. I want to follow Jesus as long as it's convenient. I want to follow Jesus as long as it means I don't have to give up any of my plans, any of my ambitions, any of my dreams for my life, even the messaging within the church today. It's, I want to follow Jesus, but I still want to hold on to my sin. We compartmentalize Jesus into neat 90-minute segments that we try to cram into our schedules. But what we're going to see over the next few weeks, church, is that Jesus is calling us to something so much bigger than this. And part of the reason why we're going to press into this for the next few weeks is that I firmly believe the hardest mission fields in the United States today are not the ones that are saturated with atheism and with agnosticism and skepticism. And I don't think as big as these problems are, I don't think the biggest threats facing the church today are progressivism and nationalism and relativism, even though those are major threats. I think the biggest threat facing the church today in communities just like ours is nominalism. It's people who profess to be Christians but aren't actually following Jesus Christ. The Bible Belt may very well be the most challenging mission field in the United States today because this is what we experience. In communities like ours, nominal Christianity has become so normal that we actually look at normal Christianity and think it's radical. Like, like we look at just basic following Jesus 101 and we think that's just some sort of radical lifestyle compared to, to everything else and what needs to happen in towns just like ours all over the southeastern United States is for what we call radical Christianity to become normal Christianity so that normal Christianity will replace nominal Christianity. Jesus is not after 90 minutes on your schedule one day a week. When he calls you to follow him, he demands the full existence of every second of our lives. Our call to discipleship is not a call to visit a building one day a week. It's not a call to a place. It's not a call to complete a program. It's not a call to just learn some principles over a 12-week period. When we are called to follow him, our calling is to a person. It's a call to follow Jesus. And so what we're going to see for the next few weeks is what it means to follow Jesus on his terms. We're going to look at what it means to follow Jesus on his terms, and we're going to see the cost of discipleship according to Jesus himself. So we'll begin today in Matthew 4 as we look at the calling of his first disciples. This is the passage Nate read for us just a few moments ago. Let's read again. Matthew 4, verses 18 through 20. And listen, before I read this today, I just want to give us a word of challenge here. If you're like me and you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this passage a hundred million times. 
It's one that we're familiar with. It's, it's one that we're maybe over-familiar with. And the danger within that is that as we come to a place of familiarity is that we quickly start to tune things out. And so I just want to challenge you this morning to open up your heart, to ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and, and to shine light on truth here that maybe we've not seen before as we evaluate our own lives in light of this text. So for Matthew 4, let's read verses 18 through 20. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. Everyone say, follow me. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then verse 20 says, immediately. Everyone say, immediately. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So what is the call? What is the call into discipleship? We see first from verses 18 through 20 that the call is very simply to follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. Now, if you go back and you read Matthew 4, 12, just to give us some context here, you see that Jesus began his earthly ministry in Capernaum, which is located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, The Sea of Galilee is about eight miles wide, 13 miles long, 700 feet below sea level, and actually be more accurate to call it a lake. But according to the first century historian Josephus, there were over 200 ships that would regularly fish this area on a regular basis. And the three methods of fishing that were typically used were a hook and a line, or it was a dragnet that would be strung up in between two ships that worked together. And the third method, the one we see in Matthew 4, is a cast net. Now, uh, we live in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the low country. How many of you, a uh, show of hands, have used a cast net before to, to actually go fishing? How many of you at least know what a cast net is, even if you've never done it? So, so pretty much every person in this room, this is something we're familiar with here in our own community. And this is what they're doing. They're fishing by using the cast net. And as they're fishing, Jesus is walking. And Peter and Andrew were brothers, and Peter's the brother that usually gets the most attention because of his prominence in the gospel accounts. Over time, we see that Peter emerges as the leader of the 12 disciples, and he becomes a part of Jesus's inner three along with James and John. And you know, not as much is known about Andrew. You know, of these four, it's Peter, James, and John that get the most attention. Not as much is known about Andrew, but this is what I love about Andrew. Almost every time we see Andrew in the gospel accounts, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. What a great thing to be known for, right? Like, if you're not known for anything else, you're the guy that's always bringing people to Jesus. And what we see in John's gospel account, just to look at a parallel example here, is that even though Peter gets the most attention, it's actually Andrew who introduces his brother Peter to Jesus. It's John 1.41 that, that Andrew comes to Peter saying, we have found the Messiah. And so, so that's the role that Andrew plays here. The best estimates here that John 1 was happening about uh, one year before the events of Matthew 4, and that's important for us. So we we recognize when we get to Matthew 4, this is not the first encounter these disciples have had with Jesus. And that's an important detail because sometimes this passage is taught as if Jesus was just a complete stranger they'd never met before, and then they dropped everything to follow him. That's not really the case. They had already recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. So Peter and Andrew were already disciples. What we see in Matthew 4 is the inauguration of their full-time discipleship. Jesus is walking along. He calls out to them, follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This was their call into discipleship. A disciple, just in its simplest form, means someone who is a learner and a follower. 
Verse 18, we see that Jesus was walking. He had uh, what's known as a peripatetic or an itinerant ministry, meaning that Jesus just traveled and taught as he went from place to place. So this wasn't formal classroom instruction. Disciples of a rabbi would follow their teacher around and he would teach as they traveled. So they would literally walk behind their master as a show of respect in order to, in a desire to imitate his example. It was a common phrase that, that was considered an honor uh, back in this culture to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. To, to literally have them kick up dirt that covered you because of what it signified is that you were walking so closely and you were listening so attentively as you worked to imitate your master. So understand, when Jesus called out to them, follow me, church, this was not a call to attend a 90-minute seminar one day a week. It was a call to surrender the entirety of their lives in order to follow the footsteps of a new master. So that's what a disciple is. But what is discipleship? They were already disciples. This inaugurates their discipleship. We see from verse 18, the discipleship begins with an invitation, the invitation from Jesus is, follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, if you study the original language here, this actually, we can learn, would have come across more to them as a command. And so we read it as follow me. They would have heard follow me. But the way it would have landed on them was not just follow me. It would have sounded a little bit more like come here. So, so let's make sure we understand what type of invitation this is. This isn't like an invitation to a birthday party or to a wedding that you can just kind of respectfully decline if you're a little bit too busy that weekend. This is more like a summons or a subpoena to appear in court. It's an invitation, but it's not really an invitation, right? You gotta go. You gotta drop what you're doing and go. And so, so parents, it's like, you know, your kids are upstairs playing and you quote unquote request, hey, could you come downstairs for a moment? And they respond, no. How do you respond? You're like, that actually wasn't a request. Like, I know that sounded like I was asking you to do something, but in fact, I was telling you, I need you to come downstairs. And so that's the type of invitation it was. It would have landed on them much more as a command to come here. Jesus Christ has eternally existed as the second person of the Trinity, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He says that all things were created by him, all things were created through him, and all things were created for him, and that includes us. So let's make sure we don't miss this this morning. It is perfectly appropriate for Jesus to command unconditional allegiance from us because he is the one who created us. He's the one who creates us, and so he has every right, every authority to call on us and to command unconditional allegiance to him. This wasn't just any rabbi. That they understood that this is the Messiah. This is the creator, savior, Messiah who's calling us. And when he calls, you don't ignore that call. And they didn't. What's the word that we repeated together a few moments ago? It said immediately, immediately they dropped their nets and they followed Jesus. So it begins with the invitation to follow him. We also see from verse 19 that discipleship is a process of transformation. Now, as a church family, um, our mission statement very simply says that we exist to glorify God by preaching the gospel and making disciples of all nations. That's really just a paraphrase of the great commission that Jesus has given in Matthew chapter 28. That's what we want to be doing. But we also have a vision statement that, that speaks to what we want to see as we do those things. And that vision says that we desire to see lives 
continually transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so what we're doing is preaching the gospel and making disciples, and what we want to see happening as we preach and as we make disciples is for lives to be continually transformed, because discipleship is a process of transformation. And that's what we see here. Jesus invites them, follow me, and I will make you. That's what the invitation, it's an invitation to be participants in a process where they are being radically transformed and continually transformed into his image. Recently, as a church family, as we studied the uh, end of the Sermon on the Mount, and then as we studied the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, we've seen a good bit about God's sovereign work in election. The doctrine of election just tells us simply that God chooses those that he gives to the Son and that all who have been given by the Father to the Son will go to the Son. That's John chapter 6. That's election. But theologically, the moment we see here is what's known as God's effective or his effectual calling. And so, so here's how these two work together. Yes, God is sovereign in choosing those he gives to the Son, and yet we are still responsible for answering his call. That's what's happening in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has called them, and they're now still responsible for answering him. God's effectual or effective calling is when the external call to come to Christ has an internal impact on your soul in such a way that it radically transforms the, the trajectory of your life. So it moves us from being people who have simply heard the gospel to actually responding to the gospel and reorienting our lives around what the gospel calls us to do. He's going to progressively make them fishers of men. This begins their process of transformation. The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 16, had prophesied that many fishers would go out to draw God's people into the kingdom. You know, believe it or not, that this term fishers of men was not unique to Jesus or Christianity. The Greeks had used it for centuries. It was a picture of catching others with your teaching and then using it to shape their lives. And so it wasn't unique to Christianity in terms of the phrasing, but what is unique in the parallel is that you consider that most of his disciples were fishermen. They were fishermen. He's now going to make them fishers of men. And I think this makes sense because if you take a close look, the skill set of fishermen actually translates pretty closely to being a follower of Christ. Just think about this for a moment. Take, take evangelism, for example. Fishing, like evangelism, any, any, who likes to fish in the room? Show of hands. Fishing takes per, patience and perseverance, amen? Like, like you don't always just, just strike the big catch right away. It takes, it takes patience, it takes perseverance. That's how it is sharing the gospel with people. We recognize that, that not everybody's gonna believe right away. We recognize that sometimes we're gonna face opposition, we're gonna face hostility. It's not gonna look like our efforts are making much of a difference. Like discipleship, it requires training and instruction. In the same way that fishermen study the weather and the tides, Christians have to understand the conditions of the culture and the world in which we live. Fishermen have to navigate turbulent storms and waves, and as Christians, we'll experience persecution and opposition from the world. Some days you catch many, some days you catch none. But regardless of the catch, the work continues all the same. So they were fishermen, but this began their radical transformation of becoming fishers of men. We also see from verse 19 that discipleship is a mission of multiplication. You know, this is where I think we need to pause here for just a second to make sure we're clear on something. You and I would be wrong to believe that the reason Jesus was calling disciples was because he needed their help. We need to make sure we understand this. You know, you could actually argue that for much of his ministry, the disciples really just got in Jesus's way, right? That in a lot of ways, they were actually a hindrance to the things that he was doing. We see all through the gospel accounts, man, at times they're self-centered. 
that they could be arrogant, they could be overly judgmental and dismissive of people. Sometimes they were faithless, sometimes they were cowardly. Even when Jesus, like he broke everything down Barney style, he would just tell them stories. He'd talk in parables. You'd see a couple chapters later, they're like, could you explain what that was about again? Just not getting it along the way. You know, when when our boys uh, were little, somebody had given us this children's Bible, and uh, we'd never really read through it before, but we were sitting down reading it with them one night, and, and it was telling the story of Matthew 4 and Jesus calling his disciples. And I'll never forget the language that, that this story, that this little Bible used. It said of Jesus, he needed special helpers for an important job. Now, I get it. It's a kid's Bible. It, it's not exactly a volume on systematic theology, like, like maybe we're reading a little bit too much into this, but I just remember reading that and leaning over to Emily and going, nope. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. But we need to understand Jesus doesn't call us because he needs our help. In fact, Jesus calls us in spite of the fact that we have nothing to offer. He doesn't call us to himself because you and I are unique or because we're special or because there's something that we have that he doesn't have that he otherwise couldn't have unless he called us. We're not bringing anything to the table when he calls us into discipleship. And guys, that is the beauty of the gospel The gospel message tells us that Jesus doesn't choose us because of who we are. Man, he chose us in spite of who we are. In spite of the fact that we were faithless and we were cowardly, in spite of the fact that we are not going to immediately understand things and we're going to just perpetually miss the point at times, in spite of bringing nothing to the table, he still invites us into this work and he chooses to work through us. This is such a beautiful picture for us. The call to discipleship is a call to participate in the work that God has been doing since the dawning of creation, which is the multiplication of his image to the ends of the earth. Go back to the book of Genesis. What what is the first command that he gives to Adam and Eve? He creates them, and he says, be fruitful and what? Multiply. This was always his plan. It was the multiplication of his image to the ends of the earth. This is the Great Commission. This is the lasting parting words that Jesus gave to his church. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We see it all through the book of Acts, how the church continually multiplied. You know, I think this has been one of the greatest errors, particularly of the church growth movement over the last 30, 40 years. It's kind of been numbers at all costs. Like the, the, the goal is really not growth by multiplication as much as it is growth by addition. Let's just get as many people to come to the building one day a week as possible. And listen, gathering together for worship, what we're doing right now, that this is an irreplaceable part of being a follower of Jesus. And in fact, we're commanded to do what we're doing right now. But discipleship is not just gathering for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. Discipleship is going into the world to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. It's a mission of multiplication. He transforms us, and then we work and we labor and we endeavor to see others transformed by his message. We see in verse 20 that discipleship requires dedication. Let's not miss this this morning. These disciples left everything to follow Jesus. They left their homes, they left their jobs. They left their money, they left their family. Discipleship is not a 90-minute meeting once a week at a coffee shop. Discipleship is an all-encompassing commitment that consumes every single part of our lives, every moment of our existence. 
Now, I'm just curious, can show of hands this morning, how, how many of you are aware of the events that unfolded at Asbury University over the last several weeks? And so reports of revival uh, on Asbury's campus. And, and, and listen, um, I, I recognize that when things like this happen, particularly on the internet, right, opinions immediately abound by people who were never even there but have somehow definitively concluded what did or did not happen. So there's some opinions, it was legit, it was real, it was supernatural. There's other opinions saying it was not legit, it was phony, it was superficial. Now that's not really the point of what I'm trying to make this morning because ultimately with any revival, it's time that's going to tell. Time will tell what was supernatural versus what was superficial. Time will tell whether repentance was genuine or whether it wasn't. Time will tell what these things, that's not really the point I'm trying to make. This is what I do wanna ask us this morning. If the Lord started moving in our midst, I mean, if the Lord really started moving in our midst and there was confession and, and there were multitudes of people coming to faith in Christ and there was a longing and there was a yearning to be gathering together around the clock to pray and to worship and to preach the gospel, you know what I'm worried about, Cross Community Church in Beaufort, South Carolina? This, this is what I fear, is if the Lord started this work in our midst, I'm afraid a lot of us just wouldn't have time for it. We just wouldn't have time. We would see it happening and we would say, that's good, that's awesome, glad it's happening, but man, we would not dare put baseball games and soccer games to the side. We would not dare skip the weekend on the boat. We would not dare skip the day on the beach. We would not dare cancel the vacation. We would not dare be inconvenienced for a move of God. I'm afraid that's where many of us stand today is we like the idea of God moving. And in fact, we might even pray and we long for revival. But church, if we're not willing to have our lives turned upside down, we waste our breath praying for revival. We waste our breath on these things. It is utterly pointless for us to plead to the Lord, turn our city upside down, and then dare not be inconvenienced when he does it. How many of us would be willing to actually participate in this? How many of us would be willing to, to have our schedules disrupted and interrupted and to actually cancel plans to be a part of something like this? Until we are willing to be inconvenienced, until we're leaving to, willing to leave everything else off to the side, we waste our breath praying for any move of God. We can't pray for God to move and then not move when he does. And that's what we need to be praying more than anything else today. Lord, move me. Move me, make me willing to be inconvenienced. Make me willing to be uncomfortable. Take me out of my ease. Take me out of my schedule. Take me out of my rhythm. Take me out of my routine so I might actually see and know you. You know, just before this event in Matthew 4.18, we see the heartbeat of Jesus' preaching in Matthew 4.17. We referenced this a lot as we studied the Sermon on the Mount last year because Matthew 4, 17 is the foundation of everything that Jesus preached and taught. And his message was simple. His message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, the word repent very simply means to turn. It's a 180 degree turn away from our old way of life as we wholeheartedly follow Jesus in his footsteps. That's Matthew 4, 17. And then what we see immediately after that in verses 18 through 22 is an illustration of repentance. It's a leaving behind of an old life in order to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. That's what's modeled here by Peter and Andrew. Now, the apostle Paul went through his own radical transformation. 
He's formerly known as Saul, and he went from being the most infamous persecutor of the Christians to becoming a persecuted Christian himself. And I love his testimony from Galatians 2.20. This, this speaks to Paul's radical transformation in his own life. This is his testimony. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. He says, it's no longer me living anymore. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Man, th this should be all of our goal across the This should be the goal of every person in this room, is to be able to say we have become so much like Jesus Christ that it's no longer us living anymore. That's no longer me living anymore. We should be able to hold up the picture and show people and say, can you believe that's me? Can you believe that's me? When you look at my life now and, and when you see what I've become, can you believe that this is me? That this is what should, should stoke within all of our hearts this morning is the desire to be so much like Jesus that we can boldly say with Paul, I'm not even alive anymore. Is Jesus living within me? John Stott has said it so simply. I, just, I, I love this. Let, let's just see the simplicity of this. He says, if we claim to be Christian, we must be like Christ. And what's crazy, guys, is that many of us, we read that and we think that's radical. It should be normal. It should be normal for Christians to look like Jesus. It should be normal for Christians to look like Christ. And if we want to be like him, it's not enough to just say that we want a Messiah. It's not enough to be a Savior. Listen, everybody wants a Savior. Everybody wants to be saved from their sins. Everybody wants to be saved from judgment. It is one thing to call Jesus your Savior. It is a completely different thing to surrender to Jesus as your Lord. This was a moment of surrender for Peter and Andrew. They were leaving an old life behind so that they could follow Jesus. We see a simple, similar uh, scenario here in verses 20 through 22. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And verse 21 says, Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately, let's say it together again, say immediately. Immediately. immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So what is the call to discipleship? It's a call to follow Jesus. And second, it's a call to forsake all else. We follow Jesus and we forsake all else. And for about a year, at least Peter and Andrew, James and John, that they knew Jesus as Messiah. They knew Jesus as Savior. This is when they begin their surrender to him as Lord. That's the problem I fear for so many of us today. Everybody wants to call Jesus their Savior. But the challenge with this church is that we cannot call Jesus our Savior if we've not also been willing to call on him is Lord. And for these first disciples, this was a moment of unconditional surrender to Jesus Christ. I'm going to work through these very, very quickly, but this is what we're going to expand on together in the coming weeks. We're going to look at each one of these more in depth. This is what following Jesus meant for them. For them, following Jesus meant choosing Jesus over their homes. It was Jesus over home. They were fishermen from Galilee, but now they would be traveling with Jesus as part of his itinerant ministry. It meant choosing Jesus over work. They had vocations as fishermen, but now they're going to be commissioned as fishers of men. It meant Jesus over money. Now, this is pure speculation. On, on my point, this is conjecture. You can take this or leave this today. I'm just reading this based on what we see in Scripture. Peter and John, we see them cast their net into the sea. We're never told that they drew them back up. 
Now, regardless of whether they left them or not, I'll, let, I'll leave you to decide on that. What we do know is that they immediately left their nets. The fact that James and John had a boat demonstrates that their fishing business had been financially very profitable. And for James and John in particular, it wasn't just Jesus over homework and money. It was Jesus over family. It said immediately they left their boats and their father. Like, poor Zebedee, right? It's like, guys, can we not at least finish out the day here? You're not going to help me out with this. You're just going to leave me with the nets. You're just going to leave me with the boats. You're just going to go off from here. I mean, they, they immediately left all of this behind. And again, we're going to look at all of those more in depth in the coming weeks, but especially family, church. But we got to be so, so careful here. Let's be clear. Like, God is absolutely calling us to be faithful husbands and wives. God calls us to provide for our families. In fact, the Word of God condemns those who abandon their families, don't provide for their families. But if you and I are not careful, church, our dreams and our ambitions for our marriages and for our kids and for our future and for our family, if we are not careful, these can become sinful idols that actually prevent us from faithfully following Jesus Christ. Discipleship means Jesus over home. It means Jesus over money. It means Jesus over work. We can't put these things in front of Christ. It's Jesus over all or it's Jesus over none, which means even beyond home and work and money and family, it's Jesus over life itself. We'll look at this passage again in just a few weeks. Matthew 16, 24. This is a call to discipleship. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the cost of discipleship. It costs us everything. And, and church, I hope you understand that, that every pressure, every temptation that you and I are facing in this world today, it is hardwired to get us to do the opposite of Matthew 16, 24. The message of our world today, and, and sometimes, unfortunately, even within the church, is not deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. The message of the world, and sometimes within the church today, is indulge yourself, pursue your comfort, and follow your heart. And that is not the call of discipleship to Jesus Christ. And sadly, I fear that many of us have followed suit here. It's when, when life gets busy, when it gets inconvenient, when it gets expensive, it's our faithfulness to Jesus that's the first thing to go out the door. I want to just, you know, just use like, like church, church attendance as, as a really simple example here. And sometimes life just consumes us, right? Before long, we know it's, it's been four, five, six weeks since we've gathered together for worship, and, and we feel guilty for that when it happens, right? I think that's a godly guilt. We understand, man, I really need to be with other believers. I need to gather with other believers. And, and so the Lord's convicting our hearts. And, and I think it's good and right and holy to have the ambition to regather with God's people. It's part of our worship every single week. But please understand, committing 90 minutes of a Sunday morning is not going to be what changes everything. Jesus is not just after one day a week time blocks on your schedule. He demands the entirety of your existence. It's not just moments on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, the community group. It's the entirety and the totality of our lives. And listen, he calls us into this because when we wholeheartedly surrender our, our, ourselves to Jesus Christ, give ourselves over to him, everything else just starts to get in line. Our schedule gets in line, our calendar gets in line, our priorities get in line, our finances get in line. All of these things get in line when we have the first priority in line, which is surrendering ourselves to Christ. 
He doesn't want part of our week. He wants all of us. So that means that comfort and convenience and safety and familiarity and ease, all of these are things that we have to surrender completely to him. It was about 10 years ago this spring, um, Emily and I were serving a church up in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. Um, massive church, several thousand members. She'd grown up there and serving on the student ministry staff and the worship staff. And uh, man, it was just everything that we could have possibly desired for student ministry was right in front of us. We had a student ministry that was about the size of our, our church family's entire congregation. We had a $10 million student ministry facility, 25, I was the youngest person on staff. We just had all the opportunity in the world right in front of us. And yet for several months in the spring of 2018, the Lord had really just been stirring this holy angst in our hearts that maybe this isn't what we wanted. And that was hard for us because this was a place of familiarity. We, yeah, Emily's parents were there and we had family close by and our oldest son Gideon was just a few months old and my dad had passed away a year and a half before. My mom was just a little bit down the road. And so we had family nearby. It was comfortable. It was convenient. Materially, it was everything that we could have ever desired in terms of ministry opportunity. And yet the Lord was just stirring up in our hearts that this, that this, this holy angst maybe maybe pushing us into something different. And it was about this time uh, David Platt had released a book called Radical. And if you've not read Radical, the subtitle of the book is Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. It, it is a book about surrendering all and laying all on the crown before the cross in order to faithfully follow Jesus Christ. And so if you, I can just paint this picture for you. I'm reading this book about laying down material comfort and laying down personal dreams and ambitions while I'm basically in my dream job in, the, in a corner office with these big floor-to-ceiling windows in a $10 million student ministry facility and feeling this call from the Lord of, I'm about to pull you out of all of this. And man, I would love to tell you today that I just said, yes, amen, Lord, do as you will with my life, because I, I fought the Lord so hard on this. Knowing in my heart what it was he was calling to do, but really not having the desire to do it, not having the, the ability to do it. But I'll never forget the day that I finally closed the door to my office. I fell on my face before the Lord, and I said, we're all in, whatever it means. And it was a short time later that the Lord actually called us to Buford and brought us down here just about 10 years ago later this fall. And again, I, I wish I could stand here and tell you today that it was easy. That's part of why I love reading Radical, because, because I felt like the book gave me permission to wrestle with this. This is one of my favorite quotes from the book where Platt writes, radical obedience to Christ is not easy. It's not comfort, not health, not wealth, and not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Christ risks losing all these things. But in the end, such risk finds its reward in Christ. And he is more than enough for us. Church, is forsaking all to follow Jesus easy? No. It's almost never easy. We have to understand this morning, our calling is not to comfort. Our calling is to a cross. We've got to deny ourselves. We've got to take up the cross, and we've got to follow Jesus Christ. So is it easy? No. But is it worth it? Absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. And that's what I so badly want us to see over these next few weeks, is that no matter what it costs us, whether it's comfort or convenience, whether it's, whether it's our home, whether it's work, whether it's money, whether it's family, whether it's our lives, no matter what it costs us, it will always be worth paying the cost because of what we receive instead in Christ. You know, all four of these disciples from Matthew 4 would go on to learn this firsthand. 
In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12, we see that James eventually was martyred by King Agrippa. His death ignited a wave of persecution against Christians. Church history and tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. R.C. Sproul has noted that Andrew basically said that he could not preach the message of the cross without welcoming the opportunity to die on one. In the third century, Tertullian recorded that John was plunged into burning oil, and Scripture tells us that he died in exile on Patmos. There's a cost. There's a cost to following Jesus Christ. There's a cost. But every single one of these disciples knew that paying the price was worth it. And listen, it's not just the testimony of Peter and Andrew, James and John. You you study the testimonies and the stories of thousands of faithful Christians throughout all of history. Now, I read a report yesterday that over 5,000 Christians were martyred worldwide last year, with almost 90% of them happening in northern Nigeria. Today, still faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are losing their lives for the sake of the gospel in a way that you and I will really never seen and maybe never will be able to fully comprehend this side of eternity. It's not just their story. You read through church history. Man, it's the testimony of of John Wycliffe. It's the testimony of William Tyndale and of Hugh Latimer. It's the testimony of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's the testimony of men like Jim Elliott. It's those who counted the cost. They looked at their homes. They looked at their careers. They looked at their money. They looked at their comfort. They even looked at their family and their lives and said, it's worth it to lose it all for Jesus. And they never regretted paying the price. In our cultural moment, I hope we understand today, it's almost utterly useless to ask anybody if they're a Christian. It's almost a completely useless question. Everybody says they're a Christian. And unfortunately, especially evangelical Christian, has way more of a political undertone now than it even does a spiritual one. And so this is what I want to leave us with this morning. I'm not going to ask the question, are you a Christian? Because I think it's pretty much a meaningless cultural question. Let's press in a little bit deeper to this today. I'm not asking, are you a Christian? I'm asking, have you forsaken everything else to follow Jesus Christ? Have you forsaken all else to follow Jesus Christ? Have you not only claimed him as your savior, have you called on him as the Lord and master of your life? Guys, he doesn't want 90 minutes of your schedule on Sunday morning. He wants all of you. He wants all of you in the way that he gave all of himself for us so that we could call on his name and faith and be saved. He demands all of us. He wants the unconditional surrender of our entire lives. So hear this call today. Church, our call today is to surrender. Our call today is to surrender. It's to surrender comfort and convenience. It's to surrender your family and your home, surrender your money and your career, surrender your plans and your dreams. Listen, surrender your sin and surrender yourself. The call is to surrender it all to Jesus Christ. And the question for us is, will we immediately drop the net and surrender to his call today? So you bow your heads with me as we close this morning. I wanna talk just very briefly to, to two different groups of people in the room. The first is for those of us who profess to be Christians. Not are you, a, are you a Christian? The question is, have you forsaken all to follow Jesus? And so I just wanna challenge you to, to invite the Holy Spirit to examine your life and your heart today. Is there anything in your life that you have not unconditionally surrendered to Jesus Christ? Your home, 
your plans, your dreams, your ambitions, your work, your career, your money, your possessions, your family, your life, your personality, your sexuality? Is there anything that you have not unconditionally surrendered to Jesus Christ? Ask the Lord for the faith and the courage to confess that to him this morning, to lay it down at his feet, to give all of yourself to him so that you can experience all that he desires for you. And, and listen, the second group I want to talk to is, is maybe you're, you're here and you're, you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not sure you're a Christian. Well, what I desperately hope you'll see today is that there's nothing that you could give up that's better than what you're going to find in Jesus. You can immediately drop it all and you're going to find something so much better in Christ. Hear his effectual call, his effective call today. He's calling you to himself to surrender your sin, surrender yourself, surrender everything you are. To lay it all down, to believe that Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be saved. He's lived the perfect life you could never live. He went to the cross and he died the death that you deserved. He took your place in death. He rose again from the grave. And today, today he offers you a, an invitation, a free gift of salvation. Call on his name in faith and be saved. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. It's not enough to call on him as savior. You have to call on him as Lord. Surrender your life to Jesus today. So fathers, we come to the table this morning. Help us to be honest. Help us to confess to repent, to lament and to mourn where our lives are out of step with your life, to lay that before you transparently and honestly today, to rejoice in the goodness of the gospel, the confidence of knowing that you have paid the price for our sins, you have called us to yourself. So God, we thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus as we come to this table, as we remember his death on the cross, as we remember his resurrection, don't ever let us forget what it cost you to save us. And in the same way that your son Jesus gave everything for us, help us to respond by giving everything to him. So Lord, that's our declaration today. Give us the courage to lay down our homes, to lay down our money, to lay down our jobs, to lay down our family, and to lay down our lives. Help us to see that you're worth it.